Hello and welcome back to Diddy and Hawthorne in the In-Between. I'm your host, Mackenzie Gens, and you're listening to my podcast about the relevancy of literature in the 21st century. Now bookmark that book and let's begin. before we get into the meat of this episode, I feel that today it is especially pertinent that I mention that the opinions I express are expressly my own, in that I am by no means trying to speak for others or trying to convince others that my arguments are somehow more valid than theirs. I also want to mention that today's episode touches on some topics that are extremely disturbing, namely necrophilia and the like, so it's okay with me if you pick up with us on our next episode on Tuesday. In other words, listener beware, boy oh boy, do we have some tea today. The reason why I was compelled to stay up last weekend and write this episode was because I finished my second book by Cormac McCarthy last week and needed to get my thoughts in order. For some background, I'm not a fan of McCarthy's work. His style is blunt, yet it has an edge to it, like the knives I imagine the painter de Grazia to have painted with, and though I appreciate it, and if you've been with us for a while, you've definitely heard mention of McCarthy's work on my show, I truly don't dig reading it. On further reflection, I really do think it has something to do with my having grown up in the Southwest. As I see it, children are either taught from a young age to idealize the West with its Westerns and its very distinctive mood, or absolutely despise it, and I, fortunately or unfortunately, fall into the latter cohort. But regardless of my opinions of McCarthy and his writing, I do want to delve into some of the aspects that make him one of the great writers of his generation. The first is his use of untranslated vernacular. As a linguist, this is something that I'm extremely interested in because most of the time, different vernaculars, most popularly AAE, African American English, are adapted for use in literature by people who speak the majority language, which is also often called standardized American English, even though I can and will assert here that there is no such thing as a standard language. The reason why minority aspects of language spread oftentimes is because of their adaptations by non-minority leaders in arenas like literature. A good example of this is with William Faulkner, who I think does a fantastic job with using different varieties of unaided vernacular, and also perhaps surprisingly the Bronte sisters with their long scenes of untranslated vernacular from the Isles English. Another example could perhaps be Zora Neale Hurston, even though she is a minority that knows that dialect rather well, um, and I believe I remember some use of AAE in her writing. So while the use of vernacular does help spread it in literature, the problem with these kinds of adaptations oftentimes is that they're lauded more so than the actual language speakers themselves. It's easy to praise McCarthy for his use of vernacular, but somehow difficult to praise the actual native speakers of the vernacular. So it's just something to think about when you are reading things like this and saying, oh, this is really brilliantly written, but where does that writing come from? Dialogue itself in McCarthy's books is unquoted, so there are no quotation marks that denote speaker's comments and also no written sense of who said what in the novels. This is also an aspect that I am a fan of in analysis because it makes the dialogue seem at points like thoughts and blurs the line between narrative structures. It also is a really great check for the audience members themselves so that they can self-determine if they're in fact hanging on with the narrative. If you ever are confused about who's speaking, it's definitely an indication that you've missed some sneaky piece of plot or characterization somewhere. The next point, description versus dialogue, I will only touch on briefly because this is something that I've mentioned in other episodes. I think it's really interesting that his books are often described in terms of their dialogue to description ratio. For example, All the Pretty Horses is pretty much half and half dialogue description. The Crossing, the second book in the series, is mostly description, and the third book is mostly dialogue. 
Another aspect that I've mentioned before is that McCarthy is a regionalist writer. He writes about the Texas-Mexico border region, which is quite close to home for me, and also the southern Tennessee region. I can determinedly say that I've read books from both of his main regions and books that pretty much cover the scope of his writing, and the regionalism is super prevalent there. The way he writes about those regions is with a kind of reverence similar to a lot of Joan Didion's work that displays his knowledge and longing of the land. Regionalism is certainly something that I want to discuss further, and I've already recorded the next Joan Dinian episode that is going out on her new book, South and West, so keep watch for that discussion then. One thing that I truly don't like about McCarthy is his word choice. I know how weird it is to comment on that element in particular, but I loathe that McCarthy always has to put in words like myriad, akimbo, swallowed up, etc, etc, etc. It's not only that, of course, but the descriptions as well. So certain descriptions just appear over and over again in different settings and in different forms. One that I remember in particular is the image of Ballard, the main character from Child of God, being swallowed up by the night. That passage is extremely similar in style and word choice to certain passages from All the Pretty Horses. It's a hard thing to pin down why exactly these descriptions don't fit well with me, but for some reason these naturalist descriptions tend to bog me down when I'm trying to get through a novel. Getting back to the story at hand, I was assigned to read a book of his called All the Pretty Horses in an English class last year, so I read it first as an audiobook and then as a book book in lieu of my tradition of reading books twice before I'm asked to engage with them, and oh goodness did I barely scrape by with those readings. All the Pretty Horses in general is, in my experience, pretty textbook McCarthy, so it has the untranslated vernacular as well as untranslated Spanish. Cool for my linguistics mind, but beyond that I found this story to be utterly unmoving because it's essentially just a western with more context. If you know a bit about genre, I've heard it called a buddy book as a secondary genre to the western because it's about two best friends and their journey to Mexico, there's a love interest and not to mention a special horse and a prison and a knife fight, pretty standard stuff for that kind of novel. The one character that really saves the book for me, I think, is the love interest grandmother because she's complex enough to vary both the motivations of the plotline as well as the pacing of some elements of the book, and McCarthy does a good job of sticking her in the middle of the theme of antiquity versus modernity in a time in Mexico's history that the country also seems to exemplify those same internal struggles. To delve in a bit more, the parts where the grandmother enters are in some ways the slowest parts of the book because it's just pages and pages of chess playing and dialogue, but the way that they're written helps readers delight in that stagnance rather than to start to rot because of it. I would also make the argument that the grandmother serves as a symbol for the country of Mexico herself, especially because of her family's history and involvement and diplomacy as well as how she's represented internally as I said before. Right, so after I finished All the Pretty Horses, which must have been almost a year ago at this point, I was firmly done with McCarthy. Hard line. But 2019 is the year that I really want to use to push myself with my reading, including with things like morality, prose style, and genre. So I read another McCarthy book. I did. This time, however, I figured that I would pick his darkest book and go along with that, as I tend to find morbid and dark books rather enjoyable. I mean, hello Didion, so I endeavored to read Child of God. I remember that the first time I heard about the book uh, was actually in the aforementioned English class, and I wrote down literally something like, Child of God hyphen sympathy for serial killer. <laughs> Knowing this, I got the book, but when I started it, I was kind of enjoying the mystery of it, because beyond that, 
The teacher, for reasons that are now very obvious to me, didn't elaborate on the plot too much. And let me tell you, I started the book and had to get around to page 90 before the actual plot line hit me. The main character, spoiler alert, is a necrophiliac. The first 90 pages are pretty much what I expected coming in. The plotline was slow in a way that emphasized aspects like McCarthy's regionalism and his unique way of incorporating dialogue, and there were domestic disputes enough to make me think something like, well, this is cute. And then the hammer connected with the nail and the book did a 360 degree turn. Let me tell you, most of my reading is done at night, which literally doesn't affect me. I read many highly disturbing books and I used to be really into horror, so I'm used to reading at night. I'm used to reading disturbing things. But for some reason, the necrophilia disturbed me in a way that led me literally to nightmares. Not about necrophilia, by the way, but nightmares nonetheless. <laughs> There's an index that says something like the cardinal crimes for people are murder, rape, and incest, and obviously murder is the most explored in art, while the other two in discussions are quite drastically reduced. But personally, after reading this book, I would like to add necrophilia to the list as a fourth, because after reading it, I realized that it's somehow missing from a lot of our dialogue in the world. I mean, it's not like I haven't encountered this idea before in literature. It's arguably in the short story A Rose for Emily by William Faulkner, and also in a TED talk about um, homosexual necrophilia in ducks that I was super intrigued by a few years ago. And there are these things are all linked in the description, by the way. But the concept in my world, at least, had never been addressed in a narrative format quite like this, so it turned out to be quite shocking when I read it. After the initial shock value of what happens in the book, then there's the fact that Ballard, the main character, slowly evolves into a serial killer, which is a position based around his tastes to euphemize the whole situation. The most fascinating part of the book for me is the very ending when Ballard actually doesn't end up getting charged with any of the crimes, but instead dies in a mental hospital, and the people in the town incidentally stumble upon the cave of corpses that he had created. There are some elements in the prose style that I actually really enjoyed at this point in the novel because they had a postmodern flavor to them, and there are several offhanded comments like the ones that you would find in a real postmodern fiction book. Like, for example, he mentions that Ballard was placed in a cage next to the guy who ate people's brains out with a spoon. The part where they unearth the cadavers is also really interesting because the bare bones style in which it describes the event is somehow more painstakingly indicative than it would have been if McCarthy had fleshed it out, as with other scenery-heavy scenes in the book. The image that was created in that moment in the book is unlike anything I've ever read, and anything I've read really in a long time, and I'm still surprised that it came from this author of all people. A ton of elements also hit me after I had finished reading the book, which is part of the reason, as I mentioned already, for my creating this episode. Like the fact from the first handwritten blurb that I wrote about the book, the word sympathetic. The crazy thing is that this book is actually a sympathetic portrayal of the man. Part of why this is the case is due to the distance of the narration from both the reader as well as the character Ballard himself, without the prose becoming sterile or overly analytical. We get close-up views of Ballard's state of being, how he reacts to certain situations, such as when he's faced with immediate danger, when his house is on fire, or when he's killing someone, but are still distant enough to regard him as critically misunderstood. Now I think about now that I think about it, this description is similar to Raskolnikov's in Crime and Punishment, just in the way that they are described when they are killing people and things like that. Though Ballard seemingly has no remorse, whereas Crime and Punishment is centralized around concepts like remorse. 
And the fact that Ballard's body was used as a cadaver for medical students is also simultaneously intriguing and disturbing because the bodies of his victims, especially as he's moving them about from place to place, are often referred to as cadavers, which I think dehumanizes them in the way that Ballard dehumanized them or at least demonstrates the way that Ballard compartmentalized them in his mind in regards to his actions. But for him to become a cadaver himself at the end was a move that brought the character closer to his deeds than he could have ever gotten otherwise, even in death or in prison. He was dehumanized in a similar way as his victims and prodded over and torn apart and given an insufficient burial. If you want a book that will challenge and disturb you, this is definitely the book for you. I have to tell you that I truthfully thought that the book was interesting despite Cormac and I's odd relationship. The book is just too unique and too disturbing for me not to pine over. Lastly, this is a January bonus episode, one that's creepy and weird enough for me to make a hashtag for, so our hashtag for bonus episodes is now hashtag made you think. And I look forward to hearing from y'all on the blog and on Twitter to see what actually made you think in this episode. But if you did enjoy the discussion and would like to hear more from me, go to my blog at didianandhawthorne.blueberry.net or follow me at Twitter at didianin. 2019 is the year of Didian, so if you'd like to catch up with me, how I'm reading, I'm on book number four out of 16, I think. So we're making progress and I want to say stay tuned for the next episode in a few days time. On Tuesday, January 30th, we will be talking about more dystopia with Adam Worse. That was just a fantastic conversation. And I will see y'all on Tuesday.